The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are starting uh, the book of Daniel this morning. Uh, the book of Daniel, um, let, me, let me make a few comments about this uh, before we get into the book. Uh, if you're looking for the books in the back, the Bible's in the back, it's on page uh, 690. If you're looking for where it is in your Bibles, um, I will have some of the text up on the screen. Um, but if you're looking for it in your Bibles, uh, if you go in the middle, uh, you're going to hit the Psalms, and then you're going to hit kind of like the next big book is Isaiah. And it feels like Isaiah keeps going on and on and on forever. Um, Isaiah goes into uh, it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the big five prophets. Uh, the way you can think about this in terms of your Bible history. Um, it's kind of like the door. Isaiah is telling everybody in the Old Testament, like, hey, God's about to knock on this door and judge you. Uh, Jeremiah says, hey, it's really going to happen. The door hinges lamentations, and then you get Ezekiel and Daniel where it actually happens. So that's kind of like the, where this is at in your Bibles. So we are in the book of Daniel. Daniel engages uh, the part of God's history where um, he is sending his people out. And I swear, I chose this book back in fall of 2019 to do. It engages a lot of cultural issues and engages a lot of political uh, dynamics of our life in Jesus. I swear I did not choose this in response to anything going on today or anything going on in the last two weeks with the RNC and the DNC's convention speeches. I swear this is just God's providence for where we are in our life together. Uh, but this book is really critical for helping us understand, like, how do we kind of like find our place and everything that's going on. And so, what we're going to do is I'm going to read our passages, passage as we move along because the, we're going to take it chapter by chapter as we move through this. And they're long chapters to read. So we're just going to read them as we kind of work through the text together. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then we're going to ask for God's help and we're going to start looking at the book of Daniel together. So let's pray together and ask for God to lead us through this book together. Father, as we look at this book of Daniel and we consider how you worked through Daniel and his friends and the life that they lived in a pagan world that they were not familiar with, I pray that you would strengthen us by your spirit or that above everything else that we would know that you were near to us and that in the confusion of all the days and everything that's going on right now, that we would find a comfort and peace, a settling of our souls in your lap as we look and consider what our lives are like as pilgrims in a foreign land. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Usually when disasters strike, uh, the first, one of the first questions we ask is, how do we get here? That is uh, how we respond to mundane things, right? How do we get here? Maybe this like a project at work that you're trying to like post-mortem, this totally screwed up, how do we fix this? Or maybe you're like, for the 10 millionth time in my life, I for real cannot find the left sock, and how do we get here? Like, where is this hole in the vacuum, in a vacuum of space that all of my left socks go to? Or the more serious things, right? When divorce or addictions happen, we ask, how do we get here? What resulted in us getting to this disastrous moment in our lives? And that is um, a major aspect of how we kind of build a bridge to understanding why are we looking at this book that is situated in a land very far from here, in a context that's very different from ours, uh, 2,600 years ago, 
a long time ago, right? I mean, we, we can barely kind of relate to ourselves in January of this year, right? We're all just kind of like, we're looking forward to summer vacations. How do we look forward, how do we look back to a world that's 2,600 years ago and gain perspective for our lives today of how do we understand where we are? That is what was going on in the book of Daniel. There was a disaster that was happening. They were trying to figure out how do we get here, and here's a little bit of how they got there. Um, they had a puppet king that was set up by um, the beta bell- bully of the time in Egypt. Egypt was like the beta males of the time. They were kind of like strong, but not quite as strong, and they kind of looked to Babylon to do the, the real muscle work. They had come in and conquered Israel. And then you got the alpha male, Babylon, coming in and saying like, bro, we own you, and they took everything and walked out the door. So that's where the book of Daniel picks up because the people of God were like, bro, they just walked out of the door with everything that we got, and now we got to live in this world that we know nothing about. God, where are you? How did we get here? That is what this book of Daniel is leading us to understand, that this book spans the, the, the whole of Daniel's life, that's why it bears his name, and that it helps us wrestle with the world of chaos under the God of peace. So, we are calling this whole series... Uh, can I go back just a slide? Sorry, I forgot what we're calling the series. The Pilgrim Life. By the way, Aaron, Aaron designed this gra- graphic for us. Like, Aaron's fantastic job. I'm like, bro, I want that on a shirt. The Pilgrim Life, living at God's people in a pagan land. We're calling this the Pilgrim Life because Daniel and his friends, the whole premise of this book is that they are not where they should be, and they are going to where they want to be. That's what a pilgrim is. Like, when we think of the word pilgrim, I just have to kind of, like, pull back a little bit of the... Um, the, the wrapping on when we think of it as an American term, when we think of pilgrims, like the pilgrims who came from England to America and they set up um, what eventually became the 13 colonies, etc., etc. They, when we think of that term, we have that sort of association. Well, those pilgrims are actually like colonizers, right? They're coming in and taking over a, a land. Whereas the biblical term is more of a sojourn, right? Somebody who's walking through a place, they kind of camp out and they live there for a long time and they live there to bless the place that they live and they belong to those people for a long time or their whole lifetime, but they're actually not like originally from there. So like you have, for example, in Jeremiah 29, 7, this is again uh, before God's judgment lands on Israel, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, right? That phrase, sent you into exile, that's where we're kind of pulling up this term, pilgrim somebody who is sent into exile. God has sent them there and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare where uh, you will find, for in its welfare, you will find welfare, you will find your welfare. Sorry, I was getting a little tongue-tied there. That is the idea of pilgrim as we get into the book of Daniel. What, how does Daniel and his friends, that's just how we're going to kind of use this phrase for rather than reciting all four of their names, Daniel and his friends, how do they live in Babylon, this foreign land, in such a way that they feel not only at home, but foreign at the same time? How do they live with those people so that they are among them, they belong to them, they've got their social security number alongside them, and they bless the place where they live, right? That is why we're telling this whole series, The Pilgrim Life. And this is why we're beginning here with The Pilgrim Life begins as what we find, we're going to find in Daniel 1, as Daniel helps us live as God's people in a land that's not our home. And we're going to find that God is with us as we journey through a pagan land.
right? This is what the book of Daniel is doing for us. It is helping us kind of figure out, like, how do we live in a world that kind of feels like, kind of like home, but, like, I don't really know, like, every, I don't understand everything that's going on around me. Like, the news reports are just not the way I think that the world should be. My family dynamics are not the way that I think they should be. My marriage dynamics, if I'm married, are not the way I should be. Like, there's like a tension, that tension of the way they are, the way they should be. That's the pilgrim's journey that we're, we're working through in the book of Daniel. So, one thing just to make a quick note here. I don't want to skip past this. We're ta- Daniel is a prophet, and the way the, just as like an introductory comment about the book, and then we're getting to chapter one. Prophets function, they don't like, uh, when we think about prophets, we think of kind of like, um, man, what was that? Uh, who was that woman that did like all the infomercials in the 90s that like did like all like the read your future stuff you know what I'm talking about she was like super famous for like you guys obviously didn't watch TV at 11 o'clock at night you guys were like good good kids went to bed like 9 o'clock when you're supposed to do what yes Miss Cleo we treat the prophets like Miss Cleo who's going to tell us the future about everything that's going to happen what the, what the prophets do is they read the world through stories and pictures, and they help us find our place in them. Now, sometimes those relate to the future in kind of general senses. But so the book of Daniel, right, you see this in verse 17. We're going to get to this eventually, but you see this in verse 17. As these four views, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's basically the summary. That's the picture of this book, right? You've got like all wisdom, that's for life. That's like narrative stories. We're going to see how he has wisdom for all of life. And then the second half of that verse, we're going to see what his visions tell us about how to live in this world. So as we kind of like work through the book of Daniel, we're going to see kind of the veneer of the world kind of rubbed off a little bit and see here's how we live as people in this tension of the life now and move towards our home with Jesus. So is everybody track with me? I know there's kind of like a lot to get into, but Main point for chapter one. We're going to hit this, and then we're going to jump right into verse one. This is the main point. Know that God is with you in your pilgrim life. Right? We're, going to underst- we're going to unpack that as we get into the verse- first few verses. But know that wherever you are today, whatever the mess of 2020 has going on for you, whatever's going on, know that God is with you in your pilgrim life. This tension of where things are and where they want should be, that tension that we are not there yet, know that God is with you in the midst of that, and so what is going to define what that looks like? What do God's pilgrims look like? If you're a pilgrim, if you're following Jesus, or you want to follow Jesus, here's what that means. What, is God's pilgrim, what does it mean to be God's pilgrim? It means that you're going to be sent, strengthened, and supplied. That's what we're going to look at through this passage. So God's pilgrims are sent. That's what we're going to look at here, First one, verse 1 through 7. Pilgrims are sent. All right, so just a little bit of background. Um, this is going to be verses 1 through 7. Let me read these for us, and then we will kind of dive into some of the background. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Right, it's a big war term. Took it over. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Right, took his furniture, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, placed these vessels in the treasury, treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, Ash sorry, I always stumble over that word, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, 
and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Along, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel was called Belshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abed- Abednego. So, huh? Abednego, there we go. Uh, feel free to correct anything that I'm saying along the way. I don't know what I'm saying, nor do I know English hardly at all. Um, we, so, background of what's going on here. Can we drop down to that next verse here? The background of what's going on, um, sorry, is, um, do I have Second Kings 24 in there? Or do I not have that in there? Boom. All right, sorry, there's some lag time here between me and my slides. At, I'm, I'm my fault. Second um, Kings 24. In those days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim came, became his servant for three years. Right. So this is where the the big bully in the yard was kicking the king of Israel around. Then he turned and rebelled against him. He thought, Ah, I'm going to kick you out of here. Then the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and the bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites, and they sent them again and sent them against Judah to destroy it. According, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. So this is the background. This is a bit of like the first step in understanding Daniel is that what happens here in the book of Daniel is not by chance. It's not just political theory. It's not just sort of kind of like the way politics plays out. What happens is God is judging Israel and Babylon just happens to be his tool. So regardless of all the power that Babylon has, Israel is being judged by God. Regardless of how difficult your life is, Hardly any of us, I would say none of us, have this byline on the difficulty of our lives being judged by God. But we get that direct indication here. God is angry with Judah. He is judging them, and he is disciplining them, right? God's judgment is heavy on them. They are being kicked out of their land, and Daniel and his friends have no reason to assume that God's presence or nearness, to assume God's presence, nearness, or care, right? If you have a direct line in the Bible saying, God is judging you, there's really no reason to assume God knows me, cares about me, or is actually interested in helping me. But notice here, let's turn back, verse 2 of what's going on in this passage. And the Lord gave, pause. I want to pause there because before any of the judgment happens, before anything of the bad stuff goes down, God is in the driver's seat and he is the one who is driving where this is going. This is where we're getting, by the way, Gabe is going to show up three times in this passage. You're going to be wondering, how did Jacob determine the, pass- the structure of this sermon? It's going to deter- the Gabe word is right, it, it's the indicator. You're going to realize, I really get overpaid for my job, and this is really very simple to understand, right? There is Gabe here in verse 2, there is Gabe here in verse 9, and there is Gabe in verse 17, right? That's where we're getting the structure of this passage, right? I went to a lot of education to be able to read and understand what's going on in these passages. When it says that the Lord gave, there is what's happening here, an indication that before the kings and the politics of the world go down, there is a God who stands above them, who is the true king, who is calling the shots, who is reigning over all of these courtyard, kind of front yard skirmishes that are going down that hurt a lot of people for sure, 
but God is still in control. And it's not just God in a general sense. Do you notice? And the Lord, this is his covenant name, his name before any of the stuff goes down, his commitment to his people is secured. His commitment to his people is struck in the ground so that they know, regardless of where the, the story goes and they wander around, his commitment to where they are sent is the first and primary focus of this story. He is committed to them. He is the one in charge. They are sent by God despite being captured and enslaved. They are literally human pawns for all the battles of the day. Imagine what's going on here. Daniel, right, it just says basically they're kind of like probably upper middle class, lower upper class families, right? They had a lot of privilege. They had a lot of things going for them. They knew where their food was coming from for the next year. They had all their bills paid for. They had comfort. They knew what language they were talking to each other in. They knew the language of how to talk not only to their peers and their family, but the economy of the day. They understood the the political language of the day. They understood everything about their home country. And then Nebuchadnezzar steps in with all of his thugs and basically yanks them out, enslaves them, puts them in his court and says, you guys, everything up to this point doesn't matter. Let's restart. You're going to be mine. That's enslaving language, right? He is enslaving these people under his power. And even while we're saying that's that's where the story's going to go, before we get there, we are just reminded in verse 2, the Lord gave, right? They are being sent by God into the situation. They're being sent by God into the story. And let's see here, I want to focus in on verses 6 through 7. What's happening is that they are being assimilated into the culture, right? Assimilation. Anybody watch Star Trek, right? The Borg shows up. The Borg are these big nasty beasts. They're like a virus that has like machine and human parts. And, it's, and they would always talk about resistance is futile, right? That was like their term. They assimilate everything. In the Nebuchadnezzar is assimilating them into his culture, right? So that's what's going on. Verses six, 3 to 6, right, when it talks about, right, they were uh, given all this food. They were given all this education, right? They were, re- they were being retaught how to think. They were being retaught how to live. And then here we're going to focus in on verses 6 to 7. They were being retaught how to identify, Right? They were being assimilated here. Verse 6 to 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So, before we get to those new names, let's break down what their, their original Hebrew names were. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God has been gracious. Mishael who is what God is, right? Basically saying God is above everybody. Azariah, God has helped. They have, it's no mistake that all four of these guys have very God-centered names. Their identity is God-centered. Their identity is focused and gravity, it gravitates around who God is for them. Now, verse 7. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Belshazzar is a, is a basically breaks down into Bel, right? That's a Babylonian deity, Belteshazzar, protect his life. So he's now literally saying, you were called, God is my judge. Now I'm going to say, my God protects your life. Abednego is some form of uh, this Nabu. I know that all you Star Wars freaks are going to be going nuts here. Um, that Nabu was the a Babylonian god indicates, right, he is a servant of Nebu, right, a slave of that god. That's what Abednego is kind of like 
uh, a perversion of. And then the other two names, honestly, they have something to do with pagan gods, but the text is so kind of derisive towards those names that it just kind of like muddles them. Like there's really no indication of what the Babylonian original name was because Daniel, and when he wrote this down, was just kind of like, so just kind of like, whatever, you know, but it doesn't really indicate what the, what the god uh, or the pagan god orientation was. But the important aspect of it is they were being renamed, re-identified. Their identity at a core level was being shaped to be assimilated into this Babylonian culture, right? A culture seeking to dominate their life and thought. Now, before we kind of go into like kind of spiritualizing this and understanding how this applies to us, an illustration of this is not far hard to find in our current culture or in our American history, at least. When you think about the American slave trade and how we would, how we in the general sense, how Africans were taken from their countries, what would happen is they would be stolen. That sounds familiar to Daniel. They would be shipped off, and then they would be sold off and planted in a plantation in America. And any African-American that you meet today, generally, this is not universal, but generally, their last name is the name of the plantation they belong to, right? So Dr. Anthony Bradley, I've mentioned him before, big fan of his scholarly work. His last name is Bradley. They come from, I believe, the Mississippi Delta. And after multiple, multiple years, the Bradley family has of uh, uh, African-Americans has sought to buy up the Bra- Bra- Bradley plantation, right? That's their identity. Their identity is so washed out from before they were stolen and put on that ship that they have no idea what country they come from unless they do like the DNA test or anything like that. They have no sense of their original identity. Their identity is totally defined by being slaves, even to the point that when you think of like whatever African-American standard names are, in terms of last names, those are generally names of their oppressors. So that's what's going on in Daniel. Their identity is being washed out and they're being fully assimilated into being slaves for the culture around them. They are being told, you have no value except for what I tell you your value is. When we get into disasters in our lives, when we get into trials of our lives, when we feel the tension of this world around us, whatever it is, we often begin to go towards the identifying markers of our identity. We, we go towards narratives that begin to kind of capture who we are at a core level. We begin to say, I deserve this disaster because it's all I'm worth. We begin to feel these sort of identity markers that we are enslaved to the pagan culture around us, whatever that may be. It may be something as simple as, I'm a failure of a mother. It may be something as, I am good for nothing at my job. It may be something as simple as, I cannot even barely pay my bills. I am poor. These identity markers, these things that we begin to feel from the distress of our lives, from the tension of our lives, these become the primary orientation of our identities. And yet, Daniel is showing us that at the beginning of this story, wherever you find yourselves in the tension of this life, verse 2, the Lord gave. He has sent you. That's not to say that God made you to be abused or anything like that, but God has sent you. His identity marker, his name for you is more essential, more true than whatever sort of circumstantial uh, nature of our identities could be, right? Daniel and his friends, by writing down their original Hebrew names, 
they are pushing back against fully being assimilated into the pagan culture they're in. They are saying they feel this gospel power of knowing their identity. I am who my God says I am. I'm not who you say I am. They are pushing back against whatever the narratives over their culture are trying to pull them into, right? We can call things simply as maybe you feel like at a core level you are inconvenient to other people. I am an inconvenient existence in the world of people around me. I'm a failure, right? We could use more impolite names. At the end of the day, the Bible tells us that God's name for you is a pilgrim who has been sent and loved and known. He is with you. That's why they, they hold on to their names. They remind them, I am known. God's with me. They are treasured by this God. The, the Bible itself ends with this very situation happening where they are, where you and I are given a specific name that only God knows, right? Let's throw up Revelation here. Uh, Revelation 2.17, similar to this story. They are in a pilgrim context. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, right? To the one who walks through this life and lives faithfully, who is known by God and treasures him, I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone, a pure name, right? A pure birth certificate, a pure identity, with a, with, with a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. There is a name for your pilgrimage. There is a name that you have right now that God is writing down on his new birth certificate for you in heaven that only he knows, and he will delight in showing you what your true name is at the end of the story. Right? Before we get all caught up into how do we live in this culture, we need to remember that at the very beginning of this, we are sent by a God into the tensions of this life so that we can enjoy his faithfulness to us because we are his and not this world's. Which means he has a name for you that only you get. I mean, that I had trouble naming four kids. <laughs> billions and billions of believers that he has a unique name for, for you and for everybody else who responds to Christ. There is a name that tells them a story. Pilgrim whoever. Pilgrim John, Pilgrim Carrie Lynn, Pilgrim Adam, Pilgrim Jamie, Pilgrim Hannah, everybody in the name Pilgrim so-and-so, known and sent by God himself. So before we get too far into the story, let's remember that God knows who you are, and he has sent you in this pilgrim life. We're going to move on to the next section. You guys cool? We're all like buckled in. We've got a little bit further to go. Might be a little bit of a longer sermon. I apologize to Bishop Pickney. We're okay? All right. Chapter, uh, verses 8 to 16. Pilgrims, they are both sent, and they are then strengthened. We're going to pick up here in verse 8. But Daniel resolved, right? This is Daniel. Remember his Hebrew name. Whenever you read the Hebrew name of Daniel, just remember, like, he tolerated his pagan name, but who was he truly before God? His identity is one who is centered on God. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with, with, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to, not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. Right? Notice that word again. Gave compassion on the side of the chief and the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the eunuchs who are of your own age? 
I'm sorry, of the youths who are of your own age. So you would, um, so you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, with the chief of the eunuchs who had, a, who had been assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, again, they're Hebrew names, test yourselves for ten days. Let us, give vegetable, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat with the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So, first of all, we got a few questions going on here because we get all like in the diet stuff and all you diet freaks are like going to be like, ah, oh, yeah, here we go. All right, so first of all, uh, this is like not uh, regardless of, what is it, Rick Warren, Daniel Fast, anybody familiar with that? This isn't about that, right? This is kind of like a bit of an arbitrary thing, and we're going to get into why it's a bit arbitrary. But just saying, like, all the folks are going to read this and be like, ah, see, you shouldn't eat uh, alcohol and meat. Like, that's not the point of this passage, right? The point of this passage is why are they refusing the meat and the wine? We're focused more on the meat, but here's the deal. It wasn't necessarily to say, uh, you know what, the meat is sacrificed to the idols, the vegetables are not. That's not true. Wine, meat, vegetables, all were sacrificed to the, to the pagan gods. They were all blessed by the pagan priests. So it was all food that had been sacrificed to the gods of the day. So it wasn't necessarily to say, like, ah, oh, we're having, like, a religious difference here. What really is what was being on, going on here is that there are two things. On the one hand, Daniel was choosing to resist full assimilation into the culture around him and indicating that by the primary food that strengthens the body. So... In effect, there's kind of two things going on. Kind of like we were saying in point one. He was saying, there is a line here. I'm going to be a part of this culture, but up to a line. I'm going to be a part of this and bless you guys and, be a, and benefit from this, but you don't get all of me. There's going to be a line here that I'm going to draw. And there's a, not entirely arbitrary, but there is somewhat of an arbitrary decision to say, the food that's going to strengthen you the most, right? You guys know I'm all about them proteins, right? I love them proteins. I love them steaks and chickens and sausages and bacon, right? I'm all about the protein. Protein's where you get all your, most of your strength from. And if you're a, a vegan or a vegetarian, you know, you got to do some serious karate to get some, some good protein in your life, right? With all them beans and all that stuff, right? So he's focusing in on the main thing that strengthens the body and says, no, God's going to be my strength. I'm going to rest in God's strength for me. And that's where the line's going to be. So... What I want to do here, do I, do I have like five minutes to kind of do like a little bit of like a parentheses thing here? Are you guys cool with that? Okay. Five minutes to do a little parentheses thing. I, I'm getting permission from the congregation. I, I've been told to do this now. We want to focus in on this aspect of the passage because what Daniel is doing in this little seed form of saying, I'm going to be a part of this culture, but I'm going to draw a line here, is he is beginning to live out for us a way in which we can relate to the culture around us, but still remain in our Christian identity, right? This is what we might call Christ and culture dynamics. How do we live as Christians in a world around us that is not a Christian culture, right? Frankly, that is never going to be a Christian culture till we get to heaven, and then it's going to be a Jesus culture, primarily about Jesus and not necessarily about you and me. <laughs> so how do we live in this world around us as a Christ and culture dynamics, and that how do we 
this affects how we vote. This affects how we think about the culture around us. This affects how we think about number of decisions in our life, the culture stuff in our lives. This is what you might call um, Christ and culture, and this passage helps us to become self-aware of our relationship to the culture around us. So I just want to point out, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself, right? He draws a line. Therefore, he asked the chief priest and eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Then jump, jump down to verse 12. Daniel says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and drink, uh, in, in water to drink. What he's showing for us here and how he's living is he is being, he's def- drawing a line, but he's graciously de- drawing a line. He's saying, look, I don't want to get you killed <laughs> for your job, for what you're supposed to do. But I also, I just can't do this all the way. I can't go all the way the full assimilation. So there's got to be a line of how we think about this. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to throw out a big term. And we're going to break this down. This is still in that five minute. I got five minutes. I'm, I'm, I'm clocking myself, guys. Can we throw up the next slide here? Richard Niebuhr, he wrote a book in 1951 called Christ and Culture. And in that book, he listed out five different ways in which Christians over time have related to, cu- to culture. As Christians, how they related to this line of where do you draw the line and how do you relate to the culture around you. He listed out five different ways. And what I want to do is just kind of cover them briefly because we'll talk about these as we kind of go through the rest of the book. He talked about these and he did them in such a way where I'm going to have to hold myself in to not give you live examples of these things. All right. So if you want names and dates and things like that, talk to me offline and don't record the conversation. All right. So here's the way we're going to do. First thing that he talks about is Christ against culture, right? So this is how you would describe this, right? That line, Christ against culture, it's a hard line. It's a wall. There's nobody going against it. We are against the culture. Loyal to Christ and the church entails a rejection of the culture and society. So you find this largely in kind of what you might call like strongly fundamentalist context, right? Where it's very much, we don't do what they do. That sort of position, right? You can define that however you want. Um, Christ of culture, there is a lack of tension, right? Basically, it says Christ and culture, same thing. Lack of tension between the church and the world since Jesus is the fulfiller of society's hopes and aspirations. So you see this kind of broadly. Again, we're kind of painting with like, what is that art where you just kind of like throw the bucket of paint against the wall? You know what I'm talking about? You you art nerds, you know what I'm talking about? Like, so uh, Christ and culture, like, you might see this in like liberal, liberal Protestantism, right? So um, you might see this in more like mainline denominations where basically whatever the agenda of the culture is, that's the agenda of the church. And there's really no difference except for a little bit of some Jesus language sprinkled in, right? And that's very broad brush strokes. Christ above culture. This is kind of like the third main category. And the next two are pretty uh, kind of subcategories of this. Christ above culture. We do not choose between Christ and the culture. We rely on both Christ and culture as God, re- God uses the best elements of culture to give people what they cannot achieve on their own. So there is a harmony, and yet there is a priority of Christ over the culture, right? We do not choose between Christ and culture. We rely on both. So there is a sense in which we, we want to speak the culture's language. We want to live kind of normally in the culture, but then understanding that there is a priority of Christ over the culture, and Christ will correct the culture. So we're going to go to the next two terms. So the one way you could do that is Christ and culture and paradox, right? I'm not sure why I bolded dualistic, but that was my fault. 
there is a dualistic kind of version of Christ above culture where it's like a yin and yang thing, where it's like Christ is above culture and never will the two meet, right? They, we, we speak the culture's language, but Christ is above and never will culture really be transformed by Christ. They're always in tension to each other, right? So faith and unbelief are polar opposites, opposite worlds that cannot merge. Christ and culture are pulling us one way or the other. Just to give one example, because this guy's long since dead, uh, Martin Luther would have kind of been one of these guys. Christ, um, Christ and culture and paradox, right? There's always belief and unbelief always pulling at each other. Third, fourth, fifth one, sorry, I know how to count. Um, Christ transforming culture. All of culture is under the judgment of God, yet culture is always under God's sovereign, redemptive rule in Jesus Christ. This emphasizes the goodness of creation and the conversionist, so that's what this Christ in transforming culture, affirms what became, can be affirmed and seeks to transform what is corrupted by sin and selfishness. So it's kind of saying culture can be, Christ is above culture, but Christ can be, uh, culture can be transformed to reflect more of the character and person of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't want to delve too deeply. We've already, I'm, I'm getting to the edge. I got four minutes and 30 seconds, something like that, and my five minutes curses. This is how Christians, in the broad scope of Christian tradition, have understood and tried to apply even the things that we're seeing in Daniel. The reason I'm bringing this up is that we need to become self-aware of how we think about this. Some of you, as I'm reading this, are going to think, man, I, that part felt so familiar to me. I, I grew up in that tradition. Or if you just became a Christian, you have an inbound, like an, an, in, an inbred programming of how you're going to relate to this. Nobody comes to this whole story like, like as a blank slate. If you've just become a Christian, if you weren't raised in a Christian home, if you've been in a Christian home your whole life, there is some programming where you come to this like five things and you relate to one more than the other. And that's the reason we want to kind of bring that up here at the beginning of the story is that Book of Daniel helps us to reckon with where do we, how do we understand Christian engagement with the world around us. And more fundamentally than any of those is that we are pilgrims who are strengthened by the God who is with us. You must draw a line somewhere for where your strength will come from God. You must draw a line in your life as to where you will say, God's my strength for this, not this aspect of life, whether it's your job, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your parenting, whether it's your social media buzz and all that stuff, that will be your strength and you will die with it, or God will be your strength and you will live to be faithful in those things. That's what this, this, this passage is drawing us to. And just to kind of just point this out real quick, uh, Daniel is not a jerk about it. <laughs> Verse 12, test your servants. For, uh, for 10 days, let us give, be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the use uh, basically be compared, right? He's not like combative, right? He's not like trying to be like, you're trying to make me worship this false idol. He's gracious and deferential, but there's a line. We must be aware of this category. Where will you trust the power of Christ for you over the cultural tools of power, right? Whether it's social media, whether it's your job, whether it's your occupation or your, your parenting status, your marital status, you will use those cultural things for your strength or, you will, or you'll find your strength in Christ. I realize that's a broad category. What I would encourage you to do is take that question and uh, unpack it in your small groups. Take that, say, okay, how do we, where is that, what was he talking about there? How do I find my strength in this 
area of my life versus Christ in that in my in my life right there. We cool with that? All right, we're gonna finish up. Right, everybody, like we're not. All right, we're good. I got the thumbs up from the from the bishop over here. Okay. For those who are at home, we are esteemed to have the bishop with us, the Bishop Pickney himself. Um, but all right. Verses 17 to 21. Let's finish out the story. So kind of reminding ourselves where we've been in all this, Daniel and his friends had been captured and enslaved and put in a context which was not their original story. They were put into a story that's in a pagan land where they must figure out how to live their identity under God in a context of, no, of, of people who don't care about God. They must do it in a way that they find their strength in God and not in the cultural tools of their day. And they did that by saying, we're not going to eat the meat from the table. We're going to find our strength in God. We're going to find our hope in this context, in God himself, and not in all the things that you're blessing us with. Now, how are we going to finish out the story? This story is going to end with seeing that pilgrims are supplied, right? It's not only strengthened for today, but they're going to be supplied for their lifetime as a pilgrim in this foreign land. So, verse 17 to 21 as these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief and the eunuchs brought him before Nebuchadnezzar. Here we come back to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah. Can we just again note their Hebrew names, not their pagan names? Therefore they stood before the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You see, they did all these things in saying, drawing a line, saying no to the culture at this level, and yet benefiting from the culture, Right? They benefited from the right. They, they went to basically the Harvard and Yale of the day, right? They, they, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. How do you do that? By way of these pagan teachers. <laughs> he gave them all that knowledge through these people who did not acknowledge or love God, and yet they benefited from it in such a way that they totally, like, their ACT scores were, like, out the roof compared to all their contemporaries, right? Do you guys know what the ACT is? SAT up in the Northeast, right? Sorry. SAT. SAT 2.0, where you have to write the essays rather than all the fill-in-the-blank stuff, okay? Sorry. Their, they were, their test scores were out the roof, and the text calls them by their Hebrew names to say that God was the one who is governing this, who is the one blessing them, so that, in effect, here's kind of like a little kind of like side comment within the, in the passage. Though Nebuchadnezzar was the king calling the shots, Nebuchadnezzar had been subjected to God himself. Now God was the one blessing and, and ruling this nation, giving them good gifts through his servants that were trying, that were being subjected by the political powers of the day. Nebuchadnezzar had basically become God's dog on a leash. And God was the one calling the shots and saying, I'm going to bless my people to bless you, even though you're trying to subject them. Please don't break window. Um, they are insightful and careful and useful, despite the pagan tools of how they got them. God is still on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar has, in effect, been conquered. And, by the way, this, the reason we're saying strengthened and supplied for life, verse 21, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's the, that's the end of David's life when they are sent back into the promised land. Like that's, 
when they are sent back in the king, King Cyrus is the one who gives the command um, for them to go back to the promised land. So basically saying there are pilgrims here and they were strengthened for their journey until they went home. This is for you and for me. We are strengthened in our pilgrim life and our journey. Whatever the trials of this life come and how they hit us, we are strengthened for this life until we get home with Jesus, right? There is a story that goes through the pagan land and says all these things, God is going to supply everything that you need, right? It's not to say that you're going to be better than all your non-Christian friends or smarter than all your non-Christian friends, but you're going to be strengthened in a way so that you are blessing the people around you so that the city where you live is strengthened. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. You can imagine that there is a great deal of tension in this relationship here. Here is the man who has destroyed your homeland. Here is the man who has probably killed your parents. Here is the man who has snatched you out of your homeland and enslaved you, even given you enslaved names in his house to be taught and fed and bred so that you are his. He has taught, sought to conquer you in every way. And yet they stood strengthened and supplied by God's gifting and blessing before him without any fear, with every intention to be a part of God's love for this pagan land. We end the story at chapter 1, I think, with John sixteen thirty three in our minds. Whatever your distress, whatever the complications of your life are, wherever the tension that you feel is, Jesus says to this world over 2020, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The world may feel complicated, just like for Daniel and his friends. That's a complicated story, complicated relationship. But in the midst of that, that's not what's true about God. God's not complicated. God may do things and not tell you why he's doing them. But God is simply in the story with you. He is in today with you to send you as his pilgrim, to strengthen you for where you feel absolutely overwhelmed and distressed, and to, and to supply you with his grace day by day, only day by day, so that you find your journey continually moving closer to him, being more drawn to him, eventually ending with him. We are pilgrims sent and strengthened and supplied. Do you today, maybe you feel that you just don't know who you are, that you need to revisit and be strengthened in his sending name over you, that you have been sent with his blessing upon you wherever you are. Maybe you feel your place and you feel just absolutely overwhelmed and you feel your desperate need for help. Let's pray for God to strengthen you. Maybe you feel at the end of your ropes and you wonder if you should keep going on. Let's pray for God's gracious supply of himself for you. That is how we find ourselves as pilgrims in a foreign land with a God who knows us, loves us, and is with us. Let's pray. Father, 
as we have worked through this passage and begun the story of Daniel, I pray that we would know that you are with us, that you have sent us, that you're strengthening us, that you have supplied for us. Would you meet us now as we worship at your table and sing your praises? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.